One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Tea and Murder, part book club, part interview show, all Agatha Christie. I'm your host, Rebecca Tundy-Norman. So I am so delighted to have here on the podcast today, Stuart Turton. Stuart is a British travel journalist and writer. His debut novel, The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, won the Costa First Novel Award and the Books Are My Bag Readers Award for Best Novel. It was shortlisted for the Specsavers National Book Awards and the British Book Awards debut of the year. It was longlisted for the New Blood Dagger and Gold Dagger at the CWA Awards and a Sunday Times bestseller for three weeks. It has been translated into over 30 languages. His second novel, The Devil in the Dark Water, was the Sunday Times Historical Book of the Year. The Book of the Year in The Guardian, Sunday Times, Daily Mail, Financial Times, Daily Express, and iPaper, to name a few. It was selected for Between the Covers on BBC Two, the Joe Wiley Book Club on Radio Two, and won the Books Are My Bag Readers Award. It was nominated for the prestigious Theakston's Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year Award, HWA Historia Award, CWA Gold Dagger, and Glass Bell. It has been translated into over 20 languages. And that is an incredibly impressive array of awards. So welcome, Stuart Turton. Thanks for being here. Thanks very much. I've literally never heard anyone actually read that entire thing out in entirety. <laughs> Amazing. Congratulations. Everyone else just like gets through about two of them. Like, I think that's there are so many awards to read about. Yeah, I think in the UK book scene, you kind of walk down the street and people hand you awards for like, you know, walking in a straight line. It's just kind of one of those strange things. <laughs> I, the, the Books Are My Bag Award sounds really fun. That's, do you know what? That's genuinely great. Yeah. That's um, booksellers. So that's the, all the UK indie booksellers just okay. get together and they have a vote. So that oh, I love that's that. Because that's the people who are selling your books, right? There's a weird uh, economic issue in uh, in publishing, which is really hard to sort of like pass. Which is which awards kind of sell books? Because that's as an author, like you really want the awards and you want the acclaim, of course you do. But you really need to sell books because you need to, you know, pay for your daughter's shoes and eat food. So 
the books in my bags is like these are the people who are out there selling books for me. They're literally bookstores recommending it. So if somebody, you know, if they give you a award, you know that they're telling people who walk into their bookstores, hey, you should probably be buying this book. So it's a really nice confidence booster that, you know, you'll be able to pay your tax bill this year. I think that's that's fantastic. And I can that would mean a lot, I can imagine, as an author. Mm-hmm. So let's dive into Agatha Christie. That's what we're here to talk about today. And I am so curious because I've heard you talk a little bit about Agatha's influence on you. What is the kind of history of your your readership of her work? How did you come to Agatha Christie? Well, I, in a way, since Agatha Christie was brought to me. Um, so a little bit of uh, social background. I was brought up in a sort of working class northern town in the north of England, um, just outside of Liverpool. Reading wasn't a big hobby there. It's not a thing that a lot of people do. And I think my next door neighbour once I'd always, I'd read Roald Dahl, I'd read things like that. And my next door neighbour, I think, just wanted to encourage this. So she used to, apropos of absolutely nothing, she would go to car boot sales and she would come back with stacks of Agatha Christie books. Like, she used to be able to buy them at car boot sales for like 10p and half off, whatever they were. And she would come back with five, 10 of them, 15, whatever she found. And I started reading these things, not really understanding them. I think I started in the middle somewhere and then just sort of like, you know, began to develop with them and then began to work out and there's Poirot and there's Marple and there's Tommy and Tuppence and all this sort of stuff. And the more, and they just kept coming and coming and coming. And this was about between about eight and 12. So between about eight and 12, I read everything that Agatha Christie had ever written. Plays, short stories, everything. Whatever she'd get her hands on, I read. And then I noticed as I got older, more like, you know, 11, 12, more repeats started to come in the novels. And I was like, oh, that's a bit strange. And then eventually I just ran out. When I was 12, I just ran out of like the Christie stories. I read them all. Like I'd read everything. And I went through, they gave me like, you know, that list of the books. I had a big one of those that my mum got all done. Yeah, sure enough, I just ticked them all off. I remember doing it and I read everything. And I just couldn't get my head around it. Because up until that point, I'd never been obsessed by anything that ended, right? Like I was a kid, there was cartoons. The cartoons just kept being on. They just kept being made. They never stopped. It was insane to me that this would stop. So at 12 years old, I finally got the sort of like, well, they stopped because she's dead. And I was like, but I don't, what, what's dead? Like explain dead to me. Like, no one had died around me. I didn't have any relatives who died. Nothing bad had ever happened to me. So I learned about death through Agatha Christie. And then I got this weird, I always remember this. I had this weird feeling of being like, well, if I write them, I'll never run out. If I can just write Agatha Christie novels, I'll never run out of Agatha Christie novels. It makes complete childish logic. It's perfect. It's just like, she stopped writing them so I can carry on writing them and I'll have some more to read. Done. And that was it. Without even realising it, it was like a kind of flag just planted in my future. I didn't do anything about it for ages, but it was always there. It was always this idea that that's what I was going to do. And... As kind of you, as you got older, did you continue rereading them? Was it something you came back to often, or was it kind of eight to twelve, read them all, and then there was just that little seed that stuck around? No, they're comfort reading, aren't they? I think that's the. I think that's why they're so popular for so many people. Like you always go back to them. You always have favourites. There's always there's some I read every year. Um, I read a lot of the short stories actually. I tend to go back to short stories quite a lot with her, but there's always. Amongst my reading mix, if I get stuck, if I'm if I've read a couple of really big literary novels and I'm stuck and I'm just in a rut, I'll go back and I'll read an Agatha Christie or I'll read a Terry Pratchett, like something like that. So she's always in that mix. She's a kind of like I don't know, so sorry for repeating the joke, but it's kind of a reading laxative for me. Like I just 
now I'll read one of those and suddenly I'm back in the flow again. You know, I can just, I can start reading again. So she serves these dual purposes for me now. She's just like, she's reading for comfort, but she's also reading to sort of like, to encourage me to keep reading. Like if I've read a book that I've not enjoyed and it's 700 pages and it's taken me four months, she's the book I'll immediately read to remind me that I love reading. I feel exactly the same way. And when I saw you speak quite a while ago, you said something which was that you you don't like to read a lot while you're writing because it's very easy to take on another writer's voice. Do you ever mm. feel that her voice is kind of in your head while you're writing? No, because I, I say this with due deference to her talent. She doesn't have a voice. Like She's not, um, she's voiceless. And she's voiceless in a way that she makes use of throughout her novels, right? Like, she she's very deftly able to switch between. That's why she can do the sort of like narrator of the murder. It's why she can do the um, she can tell the spread of characters because she isn't any one overriding thing. Like she is she is structure. She is a former. She is an understanding of how this genre works. But she's not she's not the words on the page in a really weird way. Like Agatha Christie, I would challenge you even in where she literally kind of puts herself in the novel um, as a novelist. That's still not her. She's still not in the novel in a way that I am in my novels, that a lot of other novels. Like, we've got this idea now, I think, in publishing that the voice is the thing. And it's like, it's not. Go and look at Christie. It's not. The voice isn't the thing at all. Being able to tell a story and understanding the intricacies and the structure of that story and then knowing how to twist it around, that's the thing. And that's what my career is sort of modelled on rather than her voice. Yeah, her her biographer, Laura Thompson, said a really interesting thing, which was that um, the character, for example, of Ariadne Oliver is often thought of as kind of a proxy for Agatha Christie. But her take on it is actually that she created that specifically so that she it was kind of like a it's a, a facade. People can think of that mm. as her proxy and it kind of distracts a little bit. So she doesn't have to put any more of herself into things because she gives these little crumbs where she goes, okay, you want to know what it's like to be a writer? I'll give you this little bit, but that's not actually me. Uh, and I no, thought that was a like, really I, clever take. I thought it was brilliant. And I think she wouldn't have been able to, she was writing three novels a year, sometimes more. <laughs> wild. You can't have, it's insane, isn't it? And you can't have that output if, you, if you're if you so wedded to a voice. Because a, wed, a voice is a very specific, it's hard to get into a piece of writing, believe it or not. People just think you you have a voice and therefore you have a voice in writing, and that's not the case at all. Most often, a lot of people start writing, they think they can write a book, and they end up writing a long email, but that's the way it sort of comes out, and it feels very, it feels just like paragraphs hammered together. A voice is something that has to be honed and tailored, and it kind of has to be woven in and thought about, and it takes a lot of editing. You don't do that with three books a year. So it was, it's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of, I think a lot of what we say today other people you can twist it and it can become a criticism of her and I think a lot of what she may have, she could write she could definitely write like there's there's novels of hers that are superbly written but I don't think it was her overriding concern I think her concern was this plot and it was writing three books a year it's getting these novels out making sure they were satisfying making sure they were entertaining she was a, she was my first looking back at her now she's my first jobbing novelist she was like this is a job it earns me a tremendous amount of money. I'm incredibly popular. I know what my public want, and she gave it to them. And she didn't have that. I've got to believe that she didn't have that ego about it. That, you know, when actors are comedy actors and then they want to do the big drama in the middle of the career, 
she was like, I, she started writing, what that what people want, and then just served it to them three times a year. That's remarkable to me. I, absolutely. And, but despite that, her writing is so influential. Um, and so kind of my, my take on her with this podcast is that she needs to be taken seriously as a writer mm-hmm. and as a figure in fiction. And so as someone who's been directly influenced by her, what do you think people need to understand about her influence in crime fiction and fiction in general? I think it's interesting because writing is a ball, it's a big word, and it covers an awful lot. When people say, you know, when they talk about your writing, they're not just talking about the words you put in the paper and the order you put them down, which is where Christy gets hammered a lot, right? Like that's when I talk to people, I'm like, oh, it's simple, isn't it? And it's like, it can be, it can be. But that's because her focus is on other parts of writing. So structure is, she is amazing with structure. There's a reason why she can give you one of these stories in 60,000 words, 70,000 words, almost nothing, right? pamphlet-sized novels. She gives you all the characters. She gives you all the clues, all the reveals. She gives you everything you need to know about their world in 70,000 words. She's so deft at sketching down all these details. That's remarkable to me. And then the way she realized, once she worked out and perfected the mystery, the Golden Age mystery, she was the one who started ripping the guts out of it. She started scattering them around, turning them around, twisting them around, working out what else she could do with it. That's what I'm doing with every book right now. And it's murder. It takes me two years. And she, again, she was doing it three times a year. She was coming out with novels. But we're going to talk about Amend of the Non later on. But can you imagine how excited you must have been to come up, or she must have been, to come up with that idea and realise what the resolution to that story is and that it's going to work? Like, forget writing as in putting words on paper you just needed the idea all she needed to do was get that idea across elegantly and concisely and she does and it is completely wonderful so for me that's the thing i think that's overlooked with christy tons that she's like she's not people sometimes mistakenly say you know she's the progenitor of the murder mystery genre as we know it she's not like, there was plenty before her and you know she took on a lot of stuff as well what she was though i think she was the most playful and i think she was the most skillful at recognising what else could be done with it and how it could be advanced or how it could be played with. And that doesn't get enough recognition that structurally she was as innovative as any literary novelist who's operating today. I agree. You have a, an amazing line in The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle that made me laugh out loud, which is, what kind of mind makes a theatre of murder? Mm. And, I mean, do you want to answer that? Because I think that's exactly what Agatha Christie does over and over again. And I know that wasn't yeah, that wasn't I, the context of that line, and I, I won't give away in terms of the book where what is the context. Mm-hmm. But I, it made me really—it's it, such a brilliant line to have in a murder mystery. Yeah, I like. There's something about my work that always tends to be a little bit self-referential. <laughs> I don't quite know what that is. It just seems to be a thing. I guess it's in my voice. It's something I've discovered as I write. That line was a purposeful nod to the being an author and being a creator behind these stories. Somebody who sat up long nights coming up with plots and sort of working out reveals and how people would intersect. I think the thing about it, though, is if the theatre part's really important, isn't it? It's about sort of putting all these people on stage, all these characters on stage, and somehow removing the the vileness of it. Because if you think about the genre, I think the way the genre's gone, it, it, it's got gorier, it's got modern, it's become more about traumatised victims, it's become more about the psychological damage done to the people investigating. I can sort of understand why it's gone that way. 
I don't understand why people want to read more than one of those novels in their life. Like, I don't, it generally makes no sense to me. Like, I find that that stuff, it isn't for me. It's not for my taste. But Christie made theatre a murder. What she did, she brought on stage and she made it fun and she made it playful. She made the victim something. It's just a plot piece. Don't worry about it. It doesn't, you know, they generally probably had it coming anyway. There was something in their background. She put all these outlandish characters who still felt relatable. She made the entire thing into theatre. And I, I, again, I think that's wonderful because, again, when you try and write one of her mysteries or you try to imitate her style, you actually realise how difficult that is to do. You don't want to... I didn't, when I wrote Seven Deaths especially, that book is quite grueling. Like There is a lot going on there for, for plot reasons. But you also don't want people to come out of that book feeling like they need a wash. You don't want people to put it down and be like, that was the most intense three hours of my entire life (laughs) (laughs) you just want them to have had a good time yeah and she did that she did that every time every time every time yeah and and I think some of her books uh take that on a little bit more that the theatrical element like I think of the hollow for example um that I mean she really talks about the scene of a murder as a theater set and um, Mm. even Poirot walks in and he thinks he's on a film set or something that's been staged for him Um, and so she plays with that, I think. And, and, and then There Were None is uh, so formulaic that I think you really can't see it as anything other than kind of a bit of theater. It's very theatrical. Mm-hmm. You know what's going to happen from basically the, the minute you understand the conceit. Um, so let's dive in a little bit too. And then There Were None. Do you want to give us what, you, what would be your synopsis of the book? And, and just a, a, spoilers are allowed on this podcast. Books that are over 50 years old, I don't think you can spoil them anymore. So we're going with spoilers. Okay. Uh, my question for that novel is that a bunch of horrible people are invited to an isolated island and then they start dying one by one. But it's established very early on that there's nobody else on the island doing this. So it has to be one of the guests who's knocking off all the other guests. And while it's happening, this rhyme has been played. Um, and there's these little figures. This is the bit that always gets me. There's always these little figures representing the murders that are going to happen. And the sort of murders correspond to the rhymes in this famous poem. So it's got a kind of creepy... It's, you mentioned it is, again, to look again on this. We had a little talk before we filmed the podcast, and you mentioned to me that you found it horrifying, but it was, a, it was horrific. And that got me thinking. Did I, use I disagree. The word horrific? I think it was something like that. But I, and I think I disagreed, and I said it was like I found yeah. Wicked House and a few others much more horrific because of the nature of the plot and the tie up and the resolution. Yeah. But I was like, it's an interesting take. And I was like, why is it? It's like the exploitation of cases for dying. I was reading it again in advance of this podcast, and I realised it's because it's a it's a slasher film. Like it is a the structure is a slasher film. Like she's thirty years before slasher films were even invented. She's invented the slasher film. This is what I'm talking about. Structure is everything in novels. It structures everything in art. You put down a structure that is fantastic for something, and somebody else lifts that structure later on and applies it to something else. What is interesting with Anne and the Renon is that. The only thing that gets added to it is the one thing that it doesn't need in this book, which is an external murderer. If you had an external murderer who wasn't one of the guests on the island, it would be an incredibly unsatisfying book. But then 30 years later, they bring an external murderer to turn it into a slasher film. But that's the only addition. Everything else is basically identical, even to the point where, like, you know, people are getting hit in the head with axes. Like, they're incredibly gory deaths. They're not 
this is not like a little bit of poison here and there or whoops, somebody fell into the ocean. She's really killing these folk and she wants you to know that she hates them and they deserve it. Like, in a way that doesn't, Christy doesn't often do that. Like, she doesn't often really go for her, like, victims. But in none there were none, she really does. Well, and that's why I think what I said to you is I think it's her darkest book. And um, and I said that it's not one that I return to that often because I find it quite a, a dark read. And, and I stand by that. I think because you know from the beginning every single one of these people is going to die. And then she takes such pleasure in their deaths. I mean, they really, as you say, she kills them right good. She really kills them. <laughs> and they are super dead. Um, and she has no mercy for them. In, in the way that I think in many of her other books, the murder is either incidental, there's not a lot of gore, and as you say, it's kind of, well, they maybe had it coming, but it's quite non-judgmental. Um, I find her quite mm. non-judgmental in terms of her both the murderer and the person who's been murdered. Um, but in this book, she's really judging. She is Justice yeah. Wargrave, you know, in that book. Yeah, and I think the thing that's magnificent about her is that I'm glad you did just the Wargrave thing though, because I was like, I know you said no spoilers, but still a part of me resists, right? Again, we talked about how she must have felt when she was putting this book together. And I always do wonder whether I find, again, reading it recently, I found a lot of the characters in that book were sort of evil versions of her popular characters. That's the way they read to me. Like, oh, you've got. Um, so you've got, what's the name of the sort of judgment? So I've got no head for names, but the judgmental, the evil religious old lady, Emily Brent, I think her name yes, is. Yes, Emily Brent. Brent. Emily Brent. Yeah. If you just read her, she's Miss Marple. Like she's just an evil Miss Marple. Like the way she sort of like talks about people and the way she sort of, she almost investigates, but she overhears things and she just, she's an evil Miss Marple. The judge is Poirot by any other name. He just at points when he's like talking, he is Poirot. He's doing the methodical, logical thing. He's using his little gray cells. He's in charge of that investigation. And he reads for all the world like Poirot. You've got Anthony Marston. Is it James Anthony Marston, the guy that pops quite early doors. He drives yeah, the car Anthony, really Anthony. <laughs> Anthony Marston. He's Hastings. By any measure, he's Hastings. Or maybe Puppet Puppet. Like he's somewhere in that sort of slightly brainless, uh, good time lad who could easily go off the rails and it happens it keeps happening all the way through and she must be doing it intentionally because there's a feeling to me that she was never in any part of her writing nothing's accidental she was never stupid she was never careless but these were not aspects of her writing and i can't help but feel that what she was doing was almost like cathartic like these characters <laughs> she to write all these books for she's just inverted them slightly and just killed them she's just like right you're gone you're gone you're gone you're gone like it must have been brilliant to think that she was sat there writing this incredibly dark book which is and laughing like while she was doing it and just enjoying herself because you can feel that she's enjoying herself you can feel that she's just like this is brilliant i okay i hear that i hear that i can imagine i don't know if i can imagine her laughing while she's writing it i would love to imagine that but I, I, had, I, I know here comes the bear clock, you know, like giggling to herself. Yeah, um, yeah I think. Come on, the bear clock is very. The funny. bear clock is like, very funny. So to there's a bear clock that lands on a gentleman's head towards the. I think it's the the ninth or the eighth murder that takes place towards the end, and um, that that murder actually does make me laugh because it's so ridiculous. 
And um, she also spends like one minute on it. You know what I mean? All the other murders, there's like quite a lot of gore and stuff. With this one, it's it's that thing in, um, have you seen the movie Clue? Yeah. Yeah. Well, when they come to like the eighth body, you know, and it's like, yeah. let's check what's going on. Oh, everything's fine. Two bodies in the living room. Come on. <laughs> and it's that thing of like, fine, there's another one. Um, so I actually. Well, that book is. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. No. Sorry to interrupt. That's really, really rude of me. I'm just very excited to talk about the <laughs> Please book. Please go ahead. But the other thing that lightens, I think, the darkness that you talked about, and the reason I don't find that, I find that book incredibly funny. Like, I think there's, there's lines in it. There's a line somewhere near the beginning, which has always stuck with me, where she's talking about how the, the guy who theoretically owns this island was widowed uh, because his wife drowned. And it's like, I don't understand when he was put out because his wife was just such a bad sailor. And it's just like, Jesus, right? God, it's great. She just like sticks this line in there, and I almost would love to believe that that's the way she gossips. Like that's that's a little bit of who I could script it actually was like very curt and very funny and very cutting amongst her friends because the humour is that it's very sly. It pops up and disappears again. You're almost like, did I just read that? <laughs> yeah. Smiling, but it doesn't feel like there's loads of stuff like that that led into the darkness. And like the, the sort of we talked a little bit earlier about how. You thought this was like the darkest. I said, I said horrific. I twisted your words. I'm sorry. <laughs> the, the, the darkest of her books. But I think the thing that lightens it for me at all times is that she never expects you to have any sympathy for these people. No. Like she never. And she sketches them so you know them. She gives you characters and you understand who they are and the motivations in the backstory. You get all of that very quickly. But at no point are you asked to root for, root for them. At no point are you supposed to think anything about them getting knocked off on this island because that wouldn't be fun right like she that wouldn't be entertaining so it's not just that these characters like there's a bit where <laughs> again uh rogers the butler his wife dies and then the next morning he's up making bacon for all the guests and nobody says to him oh man close where your wife died like, I know. Nobody's like I he's know. not like Do you know what i might need to take a minute here because my wife died no 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 He's like up making bacon and looking after him. Somebody even says, you have to forgive Rogers this morning. You know, if you're a bit late serving breakfast, his wife died. And it's like, he'll be a bit late serving breakfast. Like, it's hysterical. Like, the entire thing is fast. It is insanely good. Yeah, and I, I that part always makes me laugh as well. And then he goes out to, you know, chop the wood, which is where he meets his untimely <laughs> end. And it's yeah, it's this thing of like this. Maybe he maybe he went out there because he needed a moment. You know, he just found yeah. his wife dead. <laughs> but it's not like, he doesn't remark on it either. He does he not doesn't remark on it. He's not like oh, do you know, I was just out here having a little minute. No, no, no. He's like oh, well, there's not any food. <laughs> He's brilliant. Sorry, I keep interrupting him. No, I, so I mean I think he actually like is going around making the beds in the morning, and they're all kind of you know they're like we're waiting. If you could, if you could get the eggs ready, <laughs> it would be appreciated. Um, but I do think, you know, there's also it, it's hard sometimes with Christy because I her the class structures of her books are quite rigid. So it's sometimes hard to tell when she's kidding and when she's not with those kinds of things. And it's it's hard as a modern reader. How do you think we should kind of approach her like the way she approaches class structure is it just kind of you can't read it anachronistically this is just the time she was in or do do we approach it differently as modern readers 
No, same tone on this because I genuinely believe that the book is belongs to a reader. Every book belongs to a reader. The books I write belong to a reader. The books Christie belongs to the reader. And obviously, as an author, you can't make allowances for attitudes a hundred years in the future. It's nothing you can do about that. Mm. But saying that, there's some of that stuff that even in a time period was getting on. Like, do you know, I'm like she was. It was an age thing, I guess. She had attitudes, and they're in her books. And you can imagine her. You definitely do know that in some of these books, Christie was like all these young people like you yeah. know they're all very pc these days aren't they i'm just gonna say it like so she had some attitudes that were holdovers and i think you get to sit there and be like oh well, back up the lady like that's not great yeah. other things are just like and again to come back to the number none there's tons of this stuff isn't there there's tons of, i mean including the original title yes. even like you know there's stuff in there which like oh she's just a woman or like you know this this guy's killed a bunch of people and everyone's like well they were just natives like there's all this sort of stuff here and she's using that to tell you who these characters are she's using it very deftly again to sketch who these are and you can't I would never attribute that to her because these are the words the characters so it's not that easy is it it's not as easy as saying look the books are written ages ago just let it go like there are attitudes in there that were definitely her attitudes there are definitely things in there that we should not be we should not feel comfortable with, like we shouldn't be happy with. But at the same time, there are other things that do tell us about the rigid class structure. For example, Roger's the butler going straight back to the butler in the next morning, which I, as I was reading it, I was like, is this actually what would have happened? Like, I don't know. I'm not a fay enough for this time period. That was his gig. He was being paid. Did he feel so subservient? Is this what we did to people that he would have felt the urge to go straight back to it the next day? I'm pretty sure actually that could possibly be the case. Like, that he would have felt that he couldn't even take any time for himself on this island. And then when he gets bumped off, all the women go into the kitchen, right? Like, And they start cooking and cleaning. And it's not a conversation. They automatically assume that's their role, and off they go, and they're in the kitchen. And then there's a weird moment, isn't there, where the, 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 the police officer says something like, oh, um, I'll help you clean up. I'm quite a domesticated man. And it's like, all right, okay, cool. Yeah. Like, why, why don't those other effers can help <laughs> yeah. you as well right right but yeah so stuff like that which i think is i think is just the time that she was writing in and but we also know she has a lot of stuff like her own work where doesn't get on with the kids and he doesn't understand the kids and like he doesn't understand attitudes and he's railing against attitudes and harry and all of her does it as well and i think there's a ton of stuff in there that is just her growing old in her books and her attitudes getting old in front of us and yeah. that's fine that's so good my my favorite line, and it appears truly in, like, I can't even count how many of her books, when she talks about girls with unwashed hair who live in Chelsea. She's, like, obsessed <laughs> by the young girls with unwashed hair who live in Chelsea. And I, I always have to giggle at that because it's so clearly her coming through with the, like, you kids get off my lawn attitude about, you know, Chelsea. <laughs> I know. And I guess that she must have felt, she must have felt, you know, in the same way Poirot was like, these kids don't know who I am anymore, they don't respect me. She must have felt that. She must have felt these mm. younger readers were not picking up her books, they were not showing due deference. Like, you, she was still selling loads, right? But I imagine her cultural relevance, she must have felt it slipping as her life went along, and that's making its way into her stories and her characters, which is the cleverest way you could possibly channel it. Like, also, like, to go back to the idea that she was a genius for all this stuff. She used everything. She used every scrap, which, again, you have to do for three books a year. Any bit of inspiration you had would be, you know, it's grist for the mill, isn't it? It has to be used. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So going back to And Then There Were None, can you tell me why you chose it? Why is it, you know, the book that you would want to discuss when talking about Christie? I, it's funny. It's just, is the book. You asked me the question <laughs> and that's why it's, I'm trying to think about it, and it is the—it's just a book. It pops into my head, and it's like if I'm going to say I want to talk about a book, I want to talk about them, but none. I don't even necessarily think it's—it's—it's it's either the best conceit or the second best conceit in our canon for my money. Um, it's not the best written. It doesn't have the best characters. It doesn't necessarily do all the things perfectly, but what it does is it creates an immediate sense of horror. It creates an immediate sense of threat and menace that never lets go. It's perfectly plotted. It's the most efficient piece of writing I've ever read in my entire life. Like, it just, there's no wasted words. There's no wasted pages. Nothing about that book is useless, flabby. Like, nothing. There's not a single thing about it. It gives up the things that need to give up in order to do that, to the point where you can tell that that's what she thought was important. She needed to kill off a character every five pages. That's the way you can see in her planning that that's what she's doing. Because she's brilliant at psychology, and we know she's brilliant at psychology, and we know she spends other books. She'll spend the first half of the book on the victim, and then kill them, and then bring Clara in. Like she's not averse to doing that. She thinks that's what the story is. So this isn't her sort of failing to do her duty. She's looked at her story and thought, I don't need to know. You don't need to know too much about these people. Like, what you need to know, I will tell you to get the story moving. So you know the bad folk. You know the bad things they've done. And then she tells you who they are through their attitudes towards things. So, like, again, there's a chapter of the doors where she's talking about one of the characters is really nervous about going to this island. And then they see a very nice fresh house for the butler. And they're like, no, it's probably going to be okay then. Because they, you know, wealth is safe. And that's, that's the viewpoint that comes across. Her servants are all incredibly stupid. Like the butler is just a very stupid man who wanders around being stupid, but Marston is stupid as well. Like, so usually stupid is not a descriptor. It's not very useful for a novelist. You can't leave it there, but she completely does. So it's just like that guy's stupid, but it's dead and tripaired, just so don't worry about it. Like, and it ties into the way he dies. It ties into sort of like why you don't care when he dies, when you're almost sort of like, and again, I go back to the slasher fifth thing. Like in a slasher movie, you're waiting for these horrible characters to get picked off one by one, and you're almost cheering when it happens. Like you want to say the method of execution is interesting. It's more interesting than their personalities because they don't have personalities. They're just there to die. Mm. The little toy shell just been knocked over one by one, and she understands that and she does it perfectly. And that in itself is brave to me as somebody who writes books to say I'm going to do that. 
and it could be criticised and it probably will be criticised because even then there were sort of like uptight critics and she did it anyway because it served the story that she was telling and yeah. she was always first and foremost about the story she was telling which I adore. I, I do think the one thing I would say is there the one character who I think at the beginning you might think either didn't do what was said or might end up escaping is the young woman Vera Claythorne Vera yeah I do think there's a little element actually and this is why I feel the book is so dark because because of this like what she ends up killing herself she uh, Mm. hangs herself and that in itself is incredibly dark but um there's this like drive towards it psychologically she cannot stop herself and Mm. I think there's other buildup within the book where you think maybe she didn't really do what was yeah. what what was said and maybe she's a little bit better than everybody else there's there's a little bit more of her, her perspective within the book um mm. so i think that that always keeps you guessing a little bit because everyone else you know they're about to die and they're awful um she's the one character where i every time i read it i go i kind of wish she didn't die yeah i think that they they changed the ending though didn't they they released the version where she didn't die was that Oh. A uh, quick note here, we did our homework on this one, and in fact, there was a different ending for And Then There Were None, but it was only for the stage adaptation. Because it was staged during World War II, Christy felt that the ending where everyone dies was too dark, and she changed it so that the final two characters fall in love and escape. The book itself was never changed. Now back to the podcast. But I read Vera's book differently. I read her with my crime writer hat on. I read her as a as a red herring I read her mm. niceness and her sort of like you know the sense that because you're right it, it her story is told over a much longer period it comes back to it and it drifts away you get pieces of what happened that day but I always thought it's like it was Christy trying to do that thing where she's she's second guessing her readers her readers are maybe trained at this point to think actually the nice person is probably the murderer and we'll find out a reason so she was playing that sort of that game with them where she was like, well, there's your nice character over there. Like, so just why don't you just look at her for a little bit? Because Wargrave, all the way through it, is described as a sociopath. Like everything about him, she gives you, this is right, there's a bit somewhere in the book where I think uh, Lombard describes exactly why this is happening. He says like Wargrave could be this guy, like he's doing it for this reason and they brush over it and they move on and he's completely right like he's 100% right that's the reason why everything's happening and that's amazing but like he was so if you read it knowing the ending he feels so obvious but he clearly wasn't it's because of these other little psychological tricks which was brilliant because she knew her readers so well that she could second guess their intentions and then put in characters to alleviate those those intentions I I like that reading actually I really like that reading Um, I never thought of her that way I thought maybe Christy was just giving her a little humanity, but you've knocked that theory right out of my head. I think we've established this is not a book with a lot of humanity in it. And I don't <laughs> think not a lot. No, not a lot. Christy's overriding concern when it came to this story. It's just grisly and funny and wonderful. It is. It is. And now your book, The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, which was your first novel, which won all the awards that we talked about earlier, is a, it's a fantastic book, and I really recommend anyone listening to read it. But I I see this book a little bit as an inside out, and then there were none, just in the sense that there is kind of an enclosed space, but 
the reason I feel that it's a bit inside out is because I, I do think the general psychology of it, and then there were none is really that people don't change. Um, whereas I think a lot of what the seven and a half deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle is about is whether people can change and what, what, when you can trust people changing. Um, how, how does that ring to you? Yeah, definitely. What's interesting to me is I didn't, when I was writing that book, I didn't come to it with a specific idea like that. What mm. I came to it was all of Agatha Christie's novels as read, like so, and internalized to an extent. Her structures, her mannerisms. I've made no bones about Seven and a Half Deaths is supposed to be an Agatha Christie novel. Like at its core, I set out to write an Agatha Christie novel. And I got, as I said elsewhere, she's written all the Agatha Christie novels and she's done them brilliantly. There's, you cannot, you cannot add to her canon. You can't do anything she hasn't already done or would do better than you. So with Seven and a Half Deaths, I ended up doing all of her tropes and then trying to invert them to make them interesting or to sort of modernize them just a little bit in a way that I thought could be thrilling. And then I have to add on body swapping and time shifts and these other elements that are a bit more sci-fi, but that's how far I had to go to write an Agatha Christie. That to me just feels like an Agatha Christie novel all the way through. But it wasn't specifically about reversing it. It was just like, it's an Agatha Christie novel and I want it to represent her entire canon. I want it to represent everything. That's why the technology in Seven and a Half Deaths goes, runs all the way through from the 30s all the way through to the late 60s because that's the period she was writing in. So everything about it is supposed to speak to her wow. entire canon. Yeah. And then even the detectives are all like, they're sort of archetypes of her detectives or like her famous characters in some way. They're all supposed to play off elements of what she'd done. So it's kind of almost like all of her books sort of pulled apart and then put together in weird and different ways. So it feels familiar, but as she did, I wanted you to kind of feel familiar and then feel completely unnerved because like nothing ever goes the way that she would have taken it. It's the idea you're supposed to constantly like, oh, I think I know what I'm getting. Nope, didn't get it. Nope, never got it. So yeah, it was fun, fun playground. I also, one of the my favorite parts of the book was reading about um, and I won't I don't want to give too much away but there is a, a kind of a person who jumps into different hosts body hosts mm. and the way you describe what it's like to be I guess a mind a spirit a soul in a body that's not your own is mm. incredibly visceral and um, is a real I mean Christy I think one of the things she doesn't do is take on kind of the visceral nature of the human body very often no. and I love that element of the book you you describe those things so perfectly and with such um it really was such a controlled description that you really felt like you were a person who could see out of what would what it would feel like to be in someone else's body as yourself oh thank you um I love that and I I thought it was such a brilliant twist um to to jump be jumping around and every time you jumped around you you knew who you were which is incredibly, I don't know how you did it. And I'm sure you had a million post-it notes everywhere trying to keep track of everything. But it, I just, I thought it was incredible. Thank you. And the, the weird thing about that was that it was a lovely thing to write. And it was a lovely challenge to set myself. But it was actually born out of a relatively simple thing, which is that increased the novels, especially the Poirot's, in some of the novels, what she would have is she would have a list of suspects who saw something and then you would have a chapter per suspect, right? So you would go to the suspect, you would talk to them, they would tell you what they've seen. And it just saw me, it struck me as much more interesting if you just saw it in the first person living what they'd seen. So you were actually just with them 
And that was the idea that that was born out of, that, that rather than they being a suspect who a detective interviewed, well, they were just the detective for the day and the suspect, and you saw the day through their eyes, and nothing would make sense and everything would got a bit jumbled. I like everything in that book. <laughs> it was a very small seed that just kind of grew and grew and grew, almost beyond my control until I was almost going mad with the complexity of it. But it was for that reason that I just taking a Christie element and then just trying to do something new with it and change it and make it a bit more not her, basically. Well, it's not her, but it speaks so much to the structures that she's built and her influence. And you recognize it as something within Christie's universe, but it's obviously completely itself. Um, Or you recognize the tropes kind of that come out and... um, I have to say, I think everyone should read. If you're an Agatha Christie fan, you will be an enormous fan of this book. If you're not, you also will be a fan of this book. But I, I really think it's such a fabulous take on, on the genre. It's really innovative. It's hard to be innovative in this genre, and you really are. Um, so I just, yeah, I can't say enough good things about the book. I really enjoyed it. Oh, um, thanks so much. That's really lovely you're very to welcome. <laughs> um, I am wondering if you could have written a different ending for And Then There Were None, would you? Or is, is there no way to rewrite that book? No, I think it's perfect. Yeah. I think it's completely... I generally... I don't say this about a lot of things. There's only <laughs> two books that are perfect for me. Got a Small Things and uh, and Then There Were None. Two perfect books. They don't... <laughs> everything's considered in And Then There Were None. She knew what she was doing. She knew what her ingredients were and she mixed them perfectly. I don't think you can change the ending of it. And they did. I mean, as we said earlier, they did. Like, we think there is another ending. And just talking about it, you can feel how wrong there is. You can feel how it would defeat the point of this crime. Like, the entire idea that there's a book where the murderer wins, but the murderer is so, you know, he's part of his own crime. Like, he falls victim to his own crime. He's willing to be, like, that's amazing to me, that idea that you could create a character that compelling and sociopathic and convincing. Because the other thing in this is, like, very little and, and then there were none makes sense. Like, if you sit back <laughs> yeah. from it and you take the elements apart and you put them on a table, it's, insane. it's ridiculous. Like, and the idea that he's insane doesn't quite work well enough. Like, you know, so the wood, like, you've got a rhyme and you make the murders match up with the rhyme, which requires the butler on a certain day to go and chop wood at a specific point so you can go and murder him this way and then another person be in this place so you can murder him that way. And then you've got to go and, like, imagine a murder. It's been like, what I'm going to do is make this murder even more complicated. And <laughs> yeah. so then he has to go to some chest. He has to go and get some little figurines and make one disappear every time and sort of like he has a room full of people and he's telling them to be more vigilant all the way through it. Yeah. For no reason whatsoever. Why would he tell them that? He doesn't have to do that unless he's been read and watched. And like he's a murderer who knows this because in the beginning of the book you're in his head and he's saying things that he wouldn't possibly have to say <laughs> unless he knew there was someone in his head reading him. It's all this stuff. There's all these things that does not matter. It does not matter because you're reading Christie, and Christie is a mm. game player. That's right. And you know you're playing a game with her. You know it. You absolutely know it, and she knows it, and that's what she's doing. She puts all the pieces on the board in front of you, and you go and play this game with Christie. And that's why she was brilliant. That's why your audience was so loyal to her, because she told them the rules, and she told them that they could play, and then you got to play. And it was so, more than anybody else, she writes this wonderful meta narrative, like it's just, it's just wonderful. Oh, yeah, brilliant. I'm going to go and read it again. <laughs> Uh, I think that's a great place to end. Stuart, where can people find you? If they like, th- uh, are you on Twitter? Are you on, I don't know, TikTok? Is that your thing? Wherever you are, tell us. 
No, this grey hair suggests that I am not a TikTok user. Um, <laughs> I, am at, uh, I am on Twitter at Stu underscore Turton. Uh, I'll be there for as long as Elon Musk doesn't own it. <laughs> and then that's it. That's the only place I am. Um, and that is quite quite enough. And they can find your books? Any bookstore. Any bookstore. Um, they're all over the place. But yeah, it's uh, definitely that water and the seven deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle or the seven and a half deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, depending on what country you're in. And is there anything coming up that you can tell us about? No, thing, no. Not, not a single no. thing. You're never I, writing another word. Never write another word. Well, I've just finished my, I've just finished writing the third book and sent it to the publisher. But I Congrats. usually for me that's an excuse. Oh well, to be honest, usually for me that's an excuse to rewrite it. So <laughs> I send the first draft in, and then I work out how it could have been better, and then I rewrite it while she's editing the draft that will never be used. <laughs> And that's sort of what I'm doing. So that's a year away. But the reason, and I think Christy would agree with this, the reason why I don't want to ever talk about books coming out is because I am in a privileged position. I write standalone. So every part of it can be a surprise. Everything I do can be a surprise. The time period, what the genres are mixing together, what it's about, who the characters are. It can all be mad. And you can find out for the first time when you open the page and you can get that thrill. So to spoil it would seem churlish when yeah, you can have this entire fresh world every single time. So I want every part of my books to be a surprise. So I don't say anything until they come out. Well, I'm I'm excited to be surprised by book number three. Um, well, thank you so much, Stuart. This has been really, really fascinating. And I really appreciate you being part of the podcast. Thank you so much, Mike. Okay, take care. Bye. 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 <laughs> I'm going to end the meeting. Thank you to our producer, Kate Cruschel, and our sound engineer, Winter Robinson. If you want to support this podcast, you can follow us on Instagram at TNMurder. You can rate and review us on iTunes, and you can tell all your friends and even strangers to follow us on your podcast platform of choice. The next episode's book is Death on the Nile. Rent it from your local library if you like, buy from your local independent bookstore, or if you would like to buy online, we recommend bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores with every purchase. A link for next week's book can be found in the episode notes. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tea and Murder. We hope you had a bracing dose of both. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.